Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down former guest and friend of the pod Liz Manischel's new feature and updates in the world of freelancing. But before we dive in, remember that we release bonus content for each episode over on patreon.com slash breaking out pod. So if you want to support us and get yourself even more info and resources, definitely check that out. Uh, but without further ado, welcome back, Liz. Yeah, welcome back. Hello. Welcome back. <laughs> we talked to you last, uh, at least the the episode came out March 2021, but we before we started recording, we're making assumptions that we had probably talked to you even earlier than that. Uh, mm -hmm. So obviously, there's a lot to catch up on. But how are you right now? I'm doing okay. I'm, um, as I mentioned before, I'm very, very pregnant. And with that comes <laughs> just like so many personal questions, right? Sure. And then I've been having mm -hmm. to have because this is, a, I think of this podcast as really like, a professional podcast talking about career and and work worky work stuff um i've had to bring that up a lot like bring up my biology a lot as a freelancer and be like mm. i'm pregnant i'm due soon i don't know when it's gonna come i don't want to leave you in a lurch just letting you know now so i'm just a lot of question marks right now i would say sure yeah that's that is an interesting thing to have to deal with so we'll definitely get into that what we were also saying before we started recording is that the timing of this podcast feels like it was planned but very much wasn't in this circumstance <laughs> where the last time we talked to you christina had just uh left her full-time position and was looking for advice on the freelancing landscape and now i am less than two weeks out of uh, being laid off at least at the time of being re of recording and so now i am also curious about the world of freelancing so it feels like anytime christina and i leave a big position we need Liz Manischel to come in and tell us what's going on. <laughs> you don't need me, but I'm glad to be a part of this major life transition. And Christina, you're still freelance, right? I am, but I I really dislike it. So I'm not, <laughs> I can't say that I'm doing it well. I focused more on kind of using my old contacts to guest lecture and, and do more of that because, yeah, I just like, I hate having to sell myself. It's really hard, I find, to... Before, when it when I had an entity behind me, it was like, oh, I don't have to prove to you that I'm worth my yeah. rate. Whereas now there's there is that where it's like I have to convince people that they should go with me or like what I can do for them. Whereas before the brand just sort of did yeah. that. Um, yeah. So I don't love that piece of it. And so I've been I've been doing more teaching um, than consulting. That's amazing, but I do have a hack for that that I that I fell okay. into, and it's um, it's reverse psychology. And I really don't even mean to do it, but I'll have a client that I like am on the fence about taking, and and then I'll start to realize like. I don't really want to work with them. And then the more I like tell them that like, I'm not the right fit, that's the more <laughs> they want to work with me. And like, okay. <laughs> so it's like pickup artist negging, but for like freelancing situation of the world. And I don't, I don't do it as a strategy. I really do it because I want to get out of that working relationship and I don't want to work with them, but take <laughs> what I'm doing and use it for yourself. <laughs> and like, you don't need them whatever like get your money get your money 
That's the other piece of it that's hard for me is I think the people that come to me tend to be more marginalized people just because of like who I am and my experience. And those are people I used to help for free because of my previous job. So it's so hard for me to like talk about money with them because I don't I don't want to have to charge them even though I yeah I do need money and I do need to make a living too you know so that's the piece that I find hard as well wait one more hack sorry but again this is just so interesting to me um because I hate wasting time right like in those conversations you go through your whole spiel you talk about what you want to do and then you get to the raid and then you're like here's the moment can you give people, not that you asked for advice, sorry, this is, hopefully someone will take something. No, this no, is why I appreciate it, yeah. This yeah, is yeah, literally why it. you're here on the <laughs> Maybe podcast. Maybe someone will take something <laughs> from this. But um, can you mention your rate in your email up front so that you give them an opportunity to just withdraw immediately and then you don't want to waste your time doing the spiel? Or is that something you're not interested in doing? Like you really do want to have that? Because I assume you have intro calls the way I have intro calls, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could. I guess I don't want, I don't know. It's just like, it's it sets a tone that I'm trying to be, I, I just, I think I have to get comfortable. I just have like a hang up. As someone who grew up with no money, I have a hang up about money in yeah. general. So that's it's so like loaded. my yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. Pun intended. It's a very loaded thing to talk about and deal with. And I, Mia Bruno, who I know all of us know and is my mentor. And I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like on the speaking tour of recommending her in life and in work. Um, she like forced me out of my comfort zone to talk about money. Um, but I, I know it's more than just what you're saying. It's, it's not just one element that's stopping you, right? Mm -hmm. right. It's, it's layers yeah. of really complex issues. Well, and, and also like Christina and I both had the experience of obviously working for uh, the same company and like, we have lots of thoughts about that company, but like the one huge benefit of it is that we could basically just be like, Ben, you know, benevolent educators where like mm -hmm. anyone yeah. from any walk of life who probably couldn't pay us under any circumstances, our rate or otherwise, like would just get the the benefit of our mm -hmm. advice and consultation for complete free. And we could easily justify just like spending a lot of time with people because like we were being underwritten and mm -hmm. transitioning away from that and having to be like very firm about like not going to do this. Like I've already since being laid off, I, I had a couple of speaking engagements that I was committed to on behalf of Seed and Spark. And when I got laid off, of course, I'm not going to do that. But I've had a handful of the people that I had speaking engagements planned with try to like be like, well, but what if you still came and just like taught your own class? And I was like, right. But are you paying me to, to do teach that? a class for previously. free? No, thank you. No, no thank you. Yeah. No. They, they tried. They tried to give me the like for exposure. No conversation like you never know who's in the room and I was like I know who's in the room you teach undergrad at a film school <laughs> like I guarantee <laughs> that's not the room that I'm doing work for free in yeah I'm teaching a class this weekend I don't do it a lot it's two seven hour days and I've been doing like four to oh, five wow. days of prep like I cannot you can't do that for free like to teach her you could go in no. and say I'll do no prep and you could ask me 10 questions and I'll talk for an hour for free. That's what we ended up transitioning yeah. to is cause, and, and also it was I was supposed to drive there and I was like, listen, I do enjoy coming in and teaching. I love being in the room with people. I cannot justify doing that for free, especially if I would need to develop my own class that like doesn't put me in legal difficulties with my former employer. So I was like, 
I'll, I, at the most, I will zoom in for like 45 minutes and you can ask me questions and I'll like go on a spiel. But I was like, that is, that's it. (laughs) And we need to set expectations now that this is probably not a regular occurrence. I just do feel bad that it was like two weeks out from this, you know. That's not on you. You couldn't have predicted that. And you let them know. No. I mean, I know what you're talking about benevolence. I mean, at Sundance, I used to take free calls all the time and that was kind of underwritten for me. I think what, the way I justify it or not even justify it because I don't think we have to justify it. But what makes me feel better is that after every call, I'll be like, here's this resource that I was paid to create that's available for free. And here's this other resource I was paid to create that's available for free. And if anything, we're providing some sort of educational value, even if you don't hire me, right? But mm-hmm. people will, they will just push those boundaries every day. This is why mm-hmm. I stack calls against each other. I always do a 30 minute call and I put it up against another meeting so that I literally have to go. I have to be on this other line. Mm. I can't dawdle. Right. Um, But it, all of this is so, it's so, what is it? Heady. It's like not even it's heady and emotional at the same time. It's a lot. It's a lot to figure out for all of us. Cause we, you know, we want to be good stewards of education and art and, and support each other where we can, but we also all want to make it and pay for our (laughs) impending baby, et cetera, et cetera. So (laughs) the last time we talked to you, Liz, you were, I think four months maximum into your full-time freelancing experience. Mm -hmm. Have you been freelance since then? I've been freelance since fall of 2020. Um, So we must have talked early 2021 if we're, we're trying this is the long mm-hmm. game I of figuring out the math of when we last talked uh <laughs> and i love it i genuinely i for me i take to it i realized and i might have mentioned this before uh that i can overthink any circumstance and it gets really bad when i don't have control or autonomy and I'm overthinking what a supervisor thinks of me or how to deliver things properly to them or like what they mean when they're delegating a cat a task, but they're not super clear about it. Like when I'm my own boss, sure. I don't have to deal with any of that bullshit. And I think that accounted for 80% of my stress, like for like mm-hmm. 80% of my life. <laughs> um, but as my own boss in the freelance world, setting my rates, setting my schedule, um, you know, there's there's pain points. It's not paradise. Um, but I like having no one to blame but myself. I actually really much, very much enjoy that part of it. For That's sure. really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so so what can we talk about those pain points really briefly before we get to the like pros yeah. of it? Like what in your mind has been the most challenging part of being a full-time freelancer? It's not like one thing that's coming to mind and maybe I have to discover it through talking about it. But uh, um, sure. I would say not understanding, like my sister is, has a corporate real estate job and has a retirement account and savings account and a 401k and a Roth IRA, all these things I don't understand. And she's very like flummoxed (laughs) by my lifestyle so much so that it makes me think I'm doing things wrong. So like, I think it's the fact that I'm building my own path, but I have no other models of pathways that I'm trying to replicate in any way. And there's no like system of support if I fail or for the future. Like it's 
big picture questions that I think are the scariest. But at the same time, I take solace in the fact that my accountant was like, you made more money this year than last year. Like, I don't know the percentage. Like, I didn't ask. I didn't do the math. But I was like, okay, that's good. I'm on a good path, right? Um, <laughs> so I would say the pain points are uh, A, that B, I have a feeling that I'm going to change my focus next year and I don't know what it is. And I think that's scary too, is like when you are, I'm not living paycheck to paycheck, but when you don't have like a massive amount of financial stability, can you explore, can you deviate, you know, can you experiment? So I'd say all the things that are the pain points are the, are the ones in abstract. Um, and then, yeah, I'm trying to think, I mean, I'd be curious what, what y'all think. I, I like selling myself, which is really disgusting to say in many forums. <laughs> um, I enjoy it. Uh, so that's not a pain point. And then I have an accountant, so she helps me with the math stuff. It's just like the lack of uh, overwhelming security that I think my sister and mm. other people in the world probably experience to the degree that they, they can like take vacations and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, even with a full-time job and like four side hustles, I also was never like, I should go on vacation. Mm -hmm. Like my vacations are, I work from Colorado to go see my mom. Right. Like, it's like, I'm not taking time off. I'm mm -hmm. just working from a new Same. location. And that, yeah. And, and that is something that admittedly scares me about freelancing is that like, I didn't feel stable when I was ostensibly as stable as you can be. <laughs> so like imagining being stable in a position where like to Christina's point, you don't have sort of the backing of a company that kind of does a lot of the talking and branding for you. That definitely freaks me out. Um, my brother's an AD and PA here in Los Angeles and like listening to the way that he schedules work is so deeply stressful to me that I can't ask him about work very often because I'm like I don't <laughs> I don't understand how you do is this. Is it just like a lot? Like this it's just lifestyle. very intense or? Well it's it's that like he'll get a text message while we're out to dinner and be like oh I guess I'm working tomorrow. Like what? <laughs> you know no, or like he'll, or or like you know he'll he'll work like 12 days straight and then not work for two months like and he just has no idea I'm like that's that's why and he's the one in our family who has like the Roth IRA and like knows all that stuff so I'm like I don't understand how you exist you are so fundamentally strange to me uh that sounds horrible I really like to know what I'm doing I usually plan my week out like a week in advance if I can if someone asks for an mm -hmm. appointment, I push them to the end of the next week. If, you know, it's like, it's too much to do things the next day. Also, I think it's really presumptuous for someone to be like, let's talk tomorrow. Like what? Even yeah. free, <laughs> like that's scary. <laughs> like I'm not ready to upend my day. Um, that's the degree of a control freak I am. Uh, sharing a lot and that has worked out with freelancing like yeah. you you have been able to maintain that sense of control I learned it from my last boss my last boss Peter I mean two a few bosses ago Peter Broderick um I was I scheduled for him and it was so funny like people would be like I want to talk to Peter is he available tomorrow and Peter's like schedule them next week and in the back of my mind I would be like that's insane they want to talk to you tomorrow 
you want me to schedule them next week? And they would always be like, sounds great. I think people come <laughs> at you with a level, for pushing forward a level of impatience, but actually there's a lot of flexibility behind that, but they're just trying to give you, they're just trying to get their answers quickly, but I think there's leeway. And that's what I learned is that I can say to someone, I'm unavailable to mid next week, but I can't wait to talk to you. And it's like, if they don't want to talk to me, they don't talk to me. There's millions of people they could talk to instead of me. Fair enough. So when you say you're looking to change your focus next year, potentially, do you mean like away from distribution consulting or away from like consulting as your freelancing gig entirely? I have no idea. It's the first time I've said it out loud. It's this sneaking suspicion I have in my brain right now. And I think it's because I've done all of these articles or speaking engagements about how the system isn't serving filmmakers. And yet, and I enjoy my job, but my job is serving the system. It's working with filmmakers very often who want to work with distributors who are not going to do very much for them. And I tell that to the filmmakers and the distributors know that. Yet we all participate in this ridiculous charade of let me pitch you and let, let's let try to broker an SVOD deal that you're never going to get. Like, it's just kind of um, weightless. And so part of me just thinks I would like to throw my weight behind something new, something deviating from this system next year. And I've had kind of some flirtations with the idea that I would actually just go into self-distribution support in the near future instead of sales, which I I think mm-hmm. since I last talked to you, I hadn't even started my sales work. But the past like two years, I've been being, um, I've been a sales rep for indie films in addition to a consultant and it does pay more and it's more, it's very interesting, but you are like going to the market and you're meeting with dickwads all the time. You know, it's like, you're just like, you're (laughs) engaging in kind of some yucky parts of the system um, because that's what the filmmakers convince themselves that they need. And wouldn't it be great to motivate a bunch of filmmakers to say, no more, no more. Stop giving Mm -hmm. money to these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's that's something that I think comes up in every sort of aspect of filmmaking, indie film and otherwise. Like the last time I did a distribution workshop, um, somebody raised their hand and were like, do you know how to get a short on Netflix? Because I know they have shorts. Like, who do you get to to get some shorts on Netflix? And I was like, (laughs) well, first of all, I have to ask you a question. You know that there are shorts on Netflix, right? And they're like, yes. And I was like, have you ever watched one? And she was like, oh, I mean, no. And I was like, cool. So (laughs) why would you want your film there? Like, who's watching shorts on Netflix? Do you just want to be able to say you're on Netflix? To what end? What like like mm-hmm. literally? What do you think you're getting out of this? And I feel like I have that conversation with so many people, and that must be a lot of your job is just being like, why? Well, beyond the blanket validation, why? Eighty percent of my job is like telling filmmakers that they're going to be disappointed before they're actually disappointed. <laughs> it's like <laughs> me being like, I could pitch all these people, but here are they. 15 companies who are going to say no to you and not even watch your trailer. And then here are the five companies that might have an intern screen your movie and then immediately say no. Like, it's just breaking hearts all the time. Mm -hmm. I was a film critic for a few years and I hated that too because it was really fun to be on TV. It was really fun to get like 
free pieces of cake to celebrate Jennifer Aniston and cake, you know, but like, <laughs> but like ultimately I was spending my time breaking down movies and it's like, that doesn't, mm -hmm. I, I want to go on the side of empowerment instead of just giving people bad news all the time. I think that's kind of that's fair. a bummer. So I, I want to stop doing that. But then there's the financial aspect. You even said it yourself that like, hey, sales pays better, even when 80% of your job is telling people to set themselves up for disappointment. So like, how how would that have to change your scheduling strategy, your client log strategy? Like, you know, what what are, in theory, since obviously you haven't committed to this yet, but like in theory, what parts of your day-to-day, -day, your career strategy would shift in this circumstance? I mean, currently, I don't really actively market myself. Like, I, I know this sounds strange, and I think I said this when we talked originally. I think the Sundance brand did me a lot of good and set me up real well, and people yeah. come to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's still a bunch of filmmakers that I haven't tapped into. So to answer your question, I think it'll be volume. It, it would have to be volume-based, and it would have to go back to hourly consulting, which sucks. Um, with sales, I work with um, an upfront fee and it's a meaningful fee. Like it's a good fee. It's less than my competition, but it's meaningful and it helps pay my bills tremendously versus stacking up, which I'm sure you too have experienced in the past, hourly consulting rates over and over and over and over mm -hmm. again. I do think that that's what it would have. That would be the trade-off is that I'd have to go into vol focusing on volume and hourly consulting um, because I wouldn't want to use the same model and charge a sales fee, but I could charge, and I know some people do, some people that we're good buds with, a monthly fee. I could do a monthly fee hmm. like a publicist does or like a digital marketing manager does, things like that. I haven't quite figured it out. I mean, I think my plan is to have the baby turn off and hope that things kind of coalesce into what I'm supposed to do when I, once I get a little distance from what I'm doing right now. And I might just come crawling back and be like, sales, mm -hmm. you were, you're stable. Uh, <laughs> you can, <laughs> um, I can do you and I enjoy you. Um, and I might retract everything I'm saying right now. Well, I guess that's part of freelancing is, is staying flexible. Mm -hmm. So has, because um, I, I obviously follow you online, you and I talk offline, uh, and I've seen the increasing frustration you've had about the distribution landscape over the past couple of uh, years. So uh, <laughs> like, has has there been a significant change in, in what you've sort of observed in indie film distribution? Or has it just been like same shit always and you're just more sick of it now than you used more to be? More aware of it, you know? I think as an indie mm -hmm. filmmaker, we kind of get half the story like our sales reps our distributors uh our producers may not always let us in into exactly what's going on behind closed doors um as a sales rep i'm having direct conversations with the distributors who kind of give me the same excuses over and over again there's no real curation like i it happened i repped this film as like the first film i ever repped it's an amazing movie i played seattle film festival and rain dance genuinely like one of my favorite movies to this day. 
And it was my first sales film. So I went to every single distributor and I was like, I love this movie. Watch it, check it out. And I heard no's across the board. And yes, they might not like the movie, but it was no name cast, no clear genre. It wasn't, it was a reflection of there being no curation. It was a, it was a reflection of just being safe. Right. And I think the further you go into the world, the further you realize nobody knows anything and they just want to make safe decisions. And even the curators and brands that we think of are really cool. They're not taking chances. They're, they're, acquiring movies that have played Sundance and TIFF and Cannes and have very fancy EPs or high level names. So it's like when the further you go in, the more you realize no one's being risky and that's depressing and, yeah. uh, and a bummer. And also that filmmakers are not really taking the time to put true investment into the release of their films in order to prove anyone wrong so that's a bummer too investment as in money no, investment time. As in time. just time time like i've been really interested in theatrical and i know everyone thinks it's dead i don't think it's dead i think it's actually the hope for indie film is art house theatrical and mm. you just hear these myths over and over again that are based off of very little data because it's just indie filmmakers being like wow I'll, I'll just work with this digital distributor because they'll take care of me and then I'll be able to step away from the film. But it's like, I mean, you'd be surprised. You could, you could play theaters. You could play midnight screenings. You could do community screenings. You could, I mean, I did, I like had a graphic designer design an enamel pin for my film. And then I gave it away to people at screenings. Like there's little tiny things you can do um but filmmakers are just exhausted and disenchanted and they're being manipulated by the system and it, i'm getting into my little sad my sad speeches all of a sudden so <laughs> you all have heard it many times I, I mean we all have heard it we've all filmed it christina and i wrote yeah. a feature about yeah. it like <laughs> yeah. you know too well yes yeah. yeah it's definitely tough and I don't really know how to talk to people about it anymore. Like my, when I did do part-time freelancing, I was often doing marketing consulting for especially episodic creators, but like just like talking to people about how you can't just sort of put something on YouTube and hope for the best. Like tags mm -hmm. are meaningless. Like you have to go out there. But like now that I'm back on the, you know, freelancing market more hardcore, I actually don't know what I would say to anyone. Because, like, what platform works right now? Like, I was talking to this influencer marketing person, and she was telling me that, like, TikTok is a great way to market yourself if you want to be on TikTok, mm. but it's not a great way to market yourself if you want to move people off platform. And, like, people tell Christina yeah. and I all the time, like, you guys should release clips of the podcast on Reels and on, and it's like, that doesn't really work unless you want to be a TikTok person. Mm -hmm. Like unless you want to build a TikTok brand, TikTok is only going to keep people there. Instagram reels will help you sell things through the Instagram store, mm -hmm. but even that doesn't really move people off platform. So I'm sort of left being yeah. like, I don't know what I would tell someone right mm -hmm. now. So I know you're more distribution, but like, have you had those conversations? What do you tell filmmakers right now in the chaos that is social media about, you know, 
drumming up midnight ticket sales about when they put their when they they do the independent distribution method and like put their work out there like what are those conversations looking like right now because i'm at a loss yeah i mean i agree it's very hard to convert people to do any action on any platform Mm -hmm. and and you are you too are marketing is not my expertise it's not my specialty um my third feature that i'm gearing up to make is testing all of the theories I have in my mind. So I can't really impart any wisdom that is tested, right? Um, But my thought is I still believe in building a personal audience. I still believe in using emotional human language uh, to promote your art and promote yourself and to not be Nike and to not be a corporation. And that's where I do like TikTok and where I do like Instagram. As long as you don't emulate you know, the way influencers behave on these platforms, but you find your own way Mm -hmm. of talking about your work and yourself. Um, But my theory and the theory of some of my colleagues that are are doing this kind of thing this year, like Naomi McDougal-Jones, is we believe that we've lost community and we've been isolated and that the way to succeed as a filmmaker is to bring back the community aspect which again goes back to theatrical or semi-theatrical or grassroots screenings. So my belief is if you could do anything possible to make a theatrical engagement have added value, whether it's like bring on a short, bring VR, you know, have a party, bring a band, have merch, have food, whatever it is, we've all talked about it millions of times think outside of the box in terms of what would you enjoy and bring that to the table. That's what I think works. What we're trying to do is drive people away from online because it devalues. It's we all know iTunes. No one makes money off of iTunes and Apple TV. Why are we spending so much time getting people to rent our film on iTunes? Like it's just, it's not helping us. But if we go and we say this ticket, Yes, it's $20, but yes, you have a rock concert and you have a hot chocolate bar and you have my movie, like it could be delightful. And so the goal Mm -hmm. is to sell delightfulness. Um, And that's what I'm testing with the next film. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, we're, de- cool. we're definitely going to talk about um, Best Friends Forever. Don't oh. you worry. I didn't mean I, to jump I'm, ahead. I'm excited to hear more. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I'm glad you brought it up organically. It's perfect. But what I'm curious about, Liz, is because this is something you said a little bit earlier, which is that like a lot of your conversations are telling people that like you're probably not going to make the money that you pay yeah. me to distribute your film. How do you have conversations about getting people to pay you when you are explicitly telling them that like the ROI of you is bad. Well, like how, like, especially for short form content, like no one makes money in short films. Are you kidding? So like, how do those conversations go? Like, I obviously don't want to lie to them, but I also don't want to like talk them out of hiring me in like the consultation. I'm telling you, talking them out of hiring you don't work. It's the weirdest thing in the world. Um, (laughs) Short form, I, I don't, I never charge an offered fee for short form. I do hourly consulting for short form. So I just sent an hourly rate. I agree. It's not even worth me finagling that or convincing them otherwise. It's just I don't even give them the sales fee because um, I've only done sales for like maybe six to 12 short films. And it was part of Chapman University 
uh, film program that I was hired for to rep their films. Um, So that was different that Chapman was paying me. And I was like, okay, ha ha ha. Um, But in terms of the conversations, the ROI isn't, they get a great ROE. I'm gonna, I mean, I know that sounds absurd, but it's true, right? Like their return on experience is awesome because I under promise and over deliver. I'm a very self-deprecating person. I will say upfront (laughs) all the ways they're gonna be disappointed by me. But then a festival will come my way and be like, do you have any films you're repping that you, sh- that you, you know, that, that we should look at? And it's like, that's not part of my job, but I do that, you know, or like um, just various opportunities, connections, networking. That I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I feel very confident that I'm good at my job. And so what I sell is education, emotional support, help with decision-making, help with negotiations, um, being an open book. The fact that I've interviewed, I mean, just this year, probably a hundred filmmakers about their distributor experiences, that informs everything I do when I talk to other new clients. Like I can go, well, let me connect you to this filmmaker who got fucked over by this distributor so you can know exactly how they were fucked over. You know, like, don't- It's not about ROI anymore because, I mean, you could say the same thing to a publicist. Publicist is $15,000 if you're doing a Sundance premiere or whatever. It's like, can't guarantee that you're going to make $15,000 in transactional revenue for that film. Mm -hmm. But the publicist says, I'm going to get you in the trades. I'm going to get you exposure. And what I say is, I'm going to give you support and I'm going to give you knowledge I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to believe in you and your film. So I've drunk my own Kool-Aid. I've done, I've done, I've done this so long, but now I've drunk the Kool-Aid. But if you asked me two years ago, I probably would have given you a lot less of a confident response. And I probably would have waffled a little bit. I mean, that's really fair. And I mean, it is encouraging that like you remember being scared shitless, but now two years out, like you're like, this is the best decision I could have made. Um, So like that's that's encouraging to hear. I think filmmakers don't work with a lot of people who care. And I think the fact that we're all filmmakers like that is actually how I start out every spiel that I give or, or share with someone I'm talking to or I'm trying to work with. I always say I've been in the trenches. I know what it feels like. I know that you care about this. I bootstrapped two features. I know that I know, and Christine, I know you know how this feels. You know, Bree, I know you know long form projects. It's like, I know you know how all of these things feel emotionally. And it's like the, the conversations they have with other people may not be women. I'm not saying anything, but are very unemotive, <laughs> uh, unempathetic, cold, sterile. And they're afraid, and then the paranoia is inserted into them, right? Sure. So I think just sure, by yeah. caring, y'all are providing a lot of value just by caring. That is such an interesting way to think about it. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that I worry that I am not sterile enough. Mm, that's a that's gross bad. phrase that I'm never going to say again. Really bad. I hated that coming out of my mouth <laughs> immediately. But, like... <laughs> I, you know, when I think back to it, like the free consultations that I would do back when I was with Seed and Spark, like the most 
encouraging conversation I had were the ones when at the end people would be like, I was so scared of this whole process and then we talked it over and now I actually feel like I have any semblance of control. Like I, I feel less scared and I loved having those conversations. And to me, it was just like, I'm just saying the same shit I tell everybody. But I guess I, I haven't thought about it enough from the other side of like, if you didn't have that knowledge, if you didn't have anyone just like laying it out for you, how valuable that could be. So I guess now mm-hmm. I just have to get over the hump of like, sure, now here, give me $200. Well, and I'd say <laughs> the other thing is that because I was a film critic and because I worked at Sundance, I really shy away from picking clients based off of the quality of their films. I can find something mm-hmm. to love in anything that a client may do, but ultimately I'm not fighting for the film, I'm fighting for them. So like, hmm. I think framing your support is not as a gatekeeper, but as um, someone who's there for them as an individual also, I think is incredibly helpful. Um, I just know that like from my own submission processes or working with vendors or working with reps, you always feel like you're being judged and you're like, are they going to like my movie? What are they going to think of me? Do I have an opportunity to work here? You feel like a beggar instead of a chooser. Mm -hmm. But if you frame your work as it's not about you, it's not about the film, it's about you. And it's about me helping you out. Um, then it, uh, then I feel less scuzzy. Too. That's also a really that's great way good. to think about it. And I just yeah. immediately wrote down that okay. quote. Because <laughs> that you're not fighting for your, the film that you're fighting for them. I really like that. And yeah, and like that's that's all I wanted to ever do, right? Is like I want other filmmakers to feel empowered and not terrified by the process. I want them to be able to focus on the parts that they like and at least have an understanding of the things that they don't like, like so that they understand like why they're doing it. Like the worst is when you have a conversation with someone who like wants to avoid like the boring hard parts of filmmaking and just doesn't understand why they are important aspects of it and why Mm -hmm. even if eventually they could hire it away that they should do it themselves at first. And I love being able to do that. So like maybe maybe I should be taking freelancing more seriously because this does sound you you are making it sound very idyllic, even with the challenges. And you know, that's not I've had a lot of good clients, but I turn away anyone who gives me any semblance of a red flag. Um so um I What are red flags to you? What what like what would be a red flag in like an initial consult? Even though I do sales and I'm a capitalist. If they're a filmmaker that is uh, cast, um, what is his name? Eric, what's his name? The guy who's in everything. Oh, Eric Roberts. Roberts. If they cast yep. Eric Roberts, that's a red flag to me. Because I'm mm-hmm. thinking, oh, that you came in with one goal. You were told to cast Eric Roberts for pre-sales. Or you, were, you know, it's like you could kind of, this is, it's a, grand generalization i'm sure they're great people who have cast eric (laughs) roberts but my perspective is it's like a signifier of a person who's being really reductive of how they make their films and they may not be an artist and what you do is you want to work with Mm -hmm. the storytellers who want to be lifelong artists not just the ones who are like one and done i'm going to make me some money from the marketplace so red flag number one is eric roberts does Quick, quick question though. Does that even work? Because he says yes to literally everything, especially, yeah, at every horror festival I've ever been to, there's like seven films with him in it. And I can't imagine that it really helps because he's just all over the place. I can't speak to it completely because I don't know anything about foreign sales. So I can't be like, the DVD sales in Iraq are great with Eric Roberts. Um, But someone is spreading the rumor that you should be casting Eric Roberts (laughs) 
or Tony Todd, or there's like three other people that like, that are mm -hmm. available and that you should get and that they're gonna bring you your film success. Um, no, even if it's a film, it, the best films are like always the ones that have no budget and you guys know this. It's always the filmmaker who's mm -hmm. a micro budget filmmaker who like did it on weekends and evenings and cares so much about the movie and just wants to keep on making movies for the rest of their lives. Um, but the red flags are the ones who are like, oh, here's another red flag. I had a really bad call a few weeks ago and it was because they were like, what can you do for us? That's literally what they said. They're like, tell us what you could do for us. Mm. And I was like, well, first of all, it's what we could do for each other. And, and then second of all, I talked myself out of the call based off of that one phrase because it felt like, oh, I'm already, the, the power imbalance is already there. This is not collaborative. We're not going to share. Right. We're not on an even standing. Um, so that's the other red flag is when they ask what I can do for them. No. No. Yeah, that definitely implies, because I've had those conversations in crowdfunding consultations where the yeah. implication is they think that I'm going to hand them the keys to the kingdom. They think that mm -hmm. I'm going to do a bunch of work on their behalf and all they have to do is show up and be brilliant. Right. And it's like, that's not a thing. And the fact that you came in here with that energy makes me think that maybe you're not taking this seriously. Yeah, and just also it's like, it's just, it's entitled. It's like, um, mm -hmm. I, I want to be flexible. I want to support them. I want to believe in them. Don't, you're not going to be paying me to believe in you. I'm going to believe in you if I think you're decent and respectful and kind. And, and I see that you are ambitious and how can I help you achieve that? Right. Not like, uh, like you were saying, it's not this transaction. It's a longer game than that. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's again, I'm a capitalist, but when you see very transactionally oriented individuals stay away from these people. Yeah. It's good advice. Final question about freelancing that I had. Um, and we may have talked about it last time and I've, I've just forgotten, but do you, how, how do you bill? Like, do you bill after consultation before paid half up front? Like what's your, what's your billing situation? <laughs> up front, always up front. And I learned that from Peter. Um, there have been circumstances. So I spend, uh, I don't know, one third of my hours working for the film collaborative. So they okay. they charge up front on my behalf and I don't schedule until I know payment has come in. And then I invoice the film collaborative monthly for what they owe me. And then for my work, okay. if it's sales, I have an upfront fee and I don't take any commission. And they pay that upfront free upfront fee before we even get started. Um, I don't screen the film until I get that fee. And actually, same for consulting. There have been exceptions where I've been I have been an idiot, but I haven't been punished for being an idiot yet. But, and the idiot is really strong. I only use that for me because I'm so <laughs> self-deprecating, but I have lapsed, right? I've forgotten to invoice and I'll say something like, we can have the session, you can pay me afterwards. And I've been lucky. Um, but I have seen working for Peter, uh, clients just not follow up or forget to, or, mm -hmm. you know, Sure. Um, so I invoice hourly. I have a template I use and um, I prorate by the minute and I um, 
charge for screening and consulting. Oh, interesting. So you do you have like a by minute kind of thing? I have for... a by hour. My hourly rate oh. is the same as it was two years ago. It's 200 an hour, sure. but it's prorated. Okay. So let's say the film is 89 minutes instead of 90. And I talk to them for an hour. I'm doing 90 plus 170. Am I doing this right? 89 plus 179. Um, 179 is what I'm charging. And I'm doing the math and I'm, I'm, I don't round up to the nearest dollar. I charge like whatever the decimal is to the hundredth decimal is what I charge. Sure. Um, okay. And I find that I, I feel solace from that, that it's like I'm charging for the exact amount of time. But I did have a client where the total came out to be like $666.66 or something like that. And he's like, <laughs> hey, you, um, just charge me another 10 minutes. <laughs> I was like, four. That's hilarious. And I that did. Really and I was like, you're only benefiting me in this circumstance. <laughs> also, what a crazy coincidence. Yeah. Um, oh, but I actually do have a piece of advice here uh, for people about billing. Because like a year ago, um, this company contacted me to consult with them about something that they were doing. And like, I basically spent the whole hour telling them not to do the thing that they were pitching me. Uh, so I don't know what ended up happening with it. But they were a Canadian company. And something I did not consider is when I sent them my rate sheet, and I sent them my invoice, I did not account for conversion. So mm. I charged like I, it was like $150 consultation fee. But they I only ended up getting like $120 because of like conversion rates and fees. And I was like, shit, I did not even consider that. So, hey, if you're consulting even with somebody from like Canada or something, pay attention to what the conversion rate is and charge them that amount and be very clear in your rate sheet. Like this is the USD yeah. like amount. So don't just, uh, it's not just $150, whatever currency you got, uh, make sure you pay attention to that. I will never make that mistake That's again. Really good advice. I think Peter, when I worked with him, because again, I did some of his billing too, very little, but I think he had like a phrase and I wish I could remember it, but it was basically like consulty pays all, all additional fees or something. And it's like, you, you can even sure. just say, right. Even if you don't want to do the math, you can just say like, as long as I get this amount in US dollars, um, that's very smart though. I haven't had a lot of, I actually avoid international clients because of scheduling time zones and because of- um, Probably smart. My expertise is, I you know, it's very hard to sell non-English language in the US. Sure. And, um, and my expertise is not in international markets. So it hasn't come up for me a lot, but I've had mm. a- couple Canadian clients and see that was the thing where it's like you know I don't really think of Canada as like a separate country in a in, in an important enough way that like it would uh, it would have you know pinged me at all like I did genuinely didn't even consider yeah. it you know when I was living in New York like half the people I knew were people from Toronto so like it, it just didn't occur to me that that was a thing I should be considering and then I got the like PayPal invoice or whatever and I was like I fucked up uh-oh uh-oh so never again. Um, but okay, let's let's transition. Let's talk about being best friends forever. You're making a third yeah. feature. Tell us about how it's going to be different this time than the films that you've made before, because you've got like a whole new strategy that you're trying out. Trying, and I find myself making concessions on a daily basis already. 
but I have these three producers who keep on reminding me, don't do that, Liz. <laughs> Stop making concessions. Um, the plan is to make this feature in public. So I have a Patreon campaign. Uh, you know, as I know, you know Patreon very well. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea is to create a, a case study from soup to nuts, from development to release, where I'm documenting all of the moments of me trying to find finances, trying to build audiences, trying to, um, I'm, I'm applying to labs and fellowships for the first time. I've never really done that before. Like, again, it was a lapse on my judgment. I should have applied to a lot more things earlier on, but I didn't. And you ran a lab for yeah. a while. Yeah, you? I just basically was like, they don't want me. I'm not gonna apply to anything. They hate me. And I didn't even know for sure if they hated me. I just assumed that they did. Um, I know a half initiative does not like me, but everywhere else, I have no idea what they think about me. Um, so uh, there's that is the ultimate transparency. But then um, the other part of it is, um, is I was very interested in, in bringing in crew into equity and having them participate in the profits of the film. But so far, no one really wants that because no one believes there is money in the back end of a film. So that's been an upward, upward climb. And then the third thing is focusing on process over outcome. I made the first two features in a rush. Um, I was in a race to do it before I had kids. And um, this, and I don't think I had a lot of fun making them. I was just kind of like, gotta do it, gotta break out, gotta be the next Lena Dunham. I already sound like her, let's let's do it, you know? And then it uh, didn't happen. And then I realized, well, why am I even drawn to make movies in the first place? It should be about artistic process. And so I'm slowing down the artistic process and documenting um, the creative development of the film in a much more meaningful way than just being like, and then I did a shot list two days before the shoot, you know, but really thinking about all these elements up front. Very cool. So what what phase are you in right now? Oh, the pre pre having a baby phase where I don't do anything at all. Um, <laughs> sure. uh, I had, I've started to I'm doing these things where I'm taking like a page of the script whenever I can and then trying to pull from shot deck or even just Google images and just trying to visualize every moment of the film. So I'm doing that. I have a deck, like I have a pitch deck, but I'm making it better every single day, getting feedback. I'm talking to production companies. So I am, I'm not WGA, I am picketing, but I am talking to production companies. My belief is that no contracts are being signed. This isn't a struck company and it's not a streamer and nothing's real about it. So I'm okay with having these meetings. I'm pitching to small private equity investors. I'm doing everything I can. I mean, we have like almost our entire crew, you know, and the script has been ready for a while and we've been applying to fellowships and labs. I wanted to do horror because I thought it would be easier to find, and I love horror, first of all love horror it's my it's like my rom-com and horror um <laughs> favorite genres um but also i wanted to test out the belief that it's easier to finance and distribute and 
I've found that yet again, I am the uh, anomaly because I'm not doing a straight horror film. I'm not doing like a slasher girl in the woods thing. I'm doing like a subversive horror comedy that's in the vein of like, like imagine um, Yellow Jackets meets Now and Then. Like it's, it's kind of that. And so it's not necessarily the most obvious horror film for people to invest in. And I'm documenting that too. So have people straight up told you like they no. th- like financiers no one said or, or is it just like you're getting a this vibe. is just me reading okay. into the like eight conversations I've had and deciding that I have a theory uh it's based off of nothing um so <laughs> I have no data whatsoever so for so like I'm I'm completely not experienced with like investors and equity investors. So like what is that process like? Like how are you finding these people? What are the conversations you're having with them, especially with your knowledge of like the deep anti-ROI of a lot of these processes? Like um break it down for me, please. I mean, it's been going to people in my network who I've talked to throughout the years who I know are investors. And just saying, are you open? Are you open to me pitching this to you? I have a deck, things like that. Um, And some of them are still, the jury's still out. Uh, A few people were like, you, like the budget right now is 400. And they're like, this is too expensive. If you were making it for a hundred, I would invest. Um, Another investor was like, I would invest in something else you would do, but not horror. I'm not interested in horror. So I'm getting actually very different responses every single time. And I think Hmm. from my, I mean, the genuine perspective that I have is that nothing's going to happen until we're closer until like, I still have to have a baby. I still have to go on maternity leave. Maybe we'll get cast attachments before we get investors though. I, I don't think it's needed, but I think we need to create a little bit more momentum. And I think most people uh see that there's going to be a slowing of momentum for the next few months and don't know how that's going to turn out and so they're not jumping on board officially until in their eyes it's real what is your like hopeful production date i've been telling everyone it's february 2024 so that's uh, we have the date i think it's the 17th of february 2024 like we have it all scheduled (laughs) we don't have the money we have like twenty thousand dollars total which is nothing to sniff at, but our budget is 400. And, um, uh, you know, there was a lot that I wanted to have done before having this baby that I don't know if I'm gonna have done, but I wanted to have the whole thing storyboarded before pregnancy. And I maybe have three weeks and I can maybe do it, but that seems hard guys. That seems really hard. I might give myself a little break and just do like two scenes. <laughs> you know, everyone's artistic process is their own artistic process. And like you said earlier, this process should be fun. If you're not having fun, then, you know, give yourself a break. A yeah, beat. I think that is the thing about freelance that maybe is coming back, right? Is the circular argument of how great freelance is, is that you always prioritize the paying job, even though you have you chose the freelance life to give yourself flexibility, but it's very hard to safeguard the creative time because you never think that you are ever making enough money. So I've had a calendar entry in my week, Thursday at 8 a.m. every single week that I just schedule over every week. 
And it's like Liz's creative storyboarding time every single week is just like, nope, it's something else now. So that's what we have to watch out for as freelancers. Yeah. I mean, I did that at Seed and Spark when um, I, I was seeing, I was in therapy before the pandemic um, and it was like kind of a hike in in new york where i was living at the time and so i had to block out like two hours of my start of the day schedule Mm -hmm. every single day in order to like go to therapy and when i stopped seeing my therapist i kept that time on my calendar as like writing time protected time because it's like i was getting my work done like that was you know it's uh, remote jobs do not need 40 hours a week usually not in the way that we conceptualize a 40-hour work week so i i maintained that therapy time even during a pandemic when i wasn't commuting anywhere um and you know i wasn't perfect (laughs) Uh, but i didn't work at seed spark during those two hours and that from being such a workaholic was very helpful to me in kind of reprioritizing how I approached like building my day. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, there, there's always a temptation of like, what if I did something productive during this two hours that was not creative at all? <laughs> it's like, well, don't though. Cause when are you going to do the creative thing? Oh, never. Cause it's not well, productive. And it is productive, like, right? It like is. That. Exactly. But that's not how we see it. We see it. At, there's no bottom line mm-hmm. to creativity. There's no end. There's no beginning. So it's hard to put it in an hour um, but it's actually really important. Yeah. Sometimes even just putting it in your schedule is half the mm-hmm. battle. And like, you know, you may not uphold it every time, but knowing that it's there, maybe eventually you'll train yourself. So uh, to kind of close out this conversation, um, what are like things like hopeful, encouraging things that you've learned from the process of radical transparency in making your film uh, about freelancing and, and taking your sort of your creative career into your own hands? Like what are what are some encouraging thoughts, practical thoughts that you can leave us with? Um, I have these AMAs. Some of my um, people on my Patreon don't know what an AMA is. So I always go AMA slash Q&A slash open forum every single time. Um, <laughs> I have these AMAs and I just kind of schedule them willy nilly when I feel like we or we're doing. And I had one a few weeks ago and they kind of devolve into talking about the way I run the Patreon sometimes where I start saying things like, oh, you know, I want to grow us. I'm not sure how. And then one of my patrons was like, um, you know, why don't you focus on growing? And I was like, well, I also want to make sure you are, you guys are happy in that, that I'm providing value to you. And he's like, well, what you don't realize is the more you grow this audience, the more I benefit from it because I get more information. I get more community. I mean, he was just like, don't think about over serving the audience you have. Think about growing your audience to benefit everyone. And that was, I'm still trying to accept that. Um, and that's the big takeaway of this radical transparency is that for people pleasers, um, running a Patreon campaign is a little hard, right? Because you're like, when they leave, you're like, what did I do? When they're there, you when they're not engaged, you're like, how do I get them engaged? What do I do? Like, there's it's a head game. But I hadn't realized from the perspective of a community member that actually promotion and growth is beneficial to growing the community that will help with indie filmmaking, that will help with radical transparency, that will help with um, transforming the industry at large. So I think my big takeaway is don't be so obsessed with people pleasing and really try to promote, promote, promote what you're doing 
if it's good, if it's good for the world, <laughs> if it's good for our community and don't feel bad about it. I love that. So where can yeah. people find uh, your Patreon and all the places that we should be following you yeah. online? Patreon is just tied to my name, Liz Manichelle. So it's patreon.com slash Liz Manichelle. And then email my website is Liz Manichelle.com. You could just find me in things that say Liz Manichelle. Perfect. Well, Liz, thank you so much for coming back, okay. updating us on your freelancing journey. Okay. Best of luck with your film and your new baby. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yay! Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about Kelsey and Kaylee, as always, plus our wonderful guests are in our episode description. And thank you to our Booby VIPs, our $10 supporters on Patreon, Brandy Nicole and Kelsey Rauber. If you want your name on that list and to have access to our bonus resources related to each and every episode, including this one, you should subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpods.